Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians and museum professionals to undermine mythology. The podcast where we tunnel underneath misconception and then blow it back to the Stone Age. I am public historian Paul Bavel. And I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and solid friend, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear listener, we are back in modern history, or at least for the most part. So machines, manufactured products, and the mass mobilisation of men and material. So to talk us through today's foray into righteous anger, we welcome former assistant curator of the Royal Engineers Museum, current curator of the Royal Logistics Corps Museum, and absolute Napoleon groupie, Sam Jolly. Sam Welcome to History Rage. Hello, thank you for having me on board. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Feeling angry? Oh, well, I'm sure I can I can get up a little bit of anger. I'm hoping that a lot of my a lot of my rants will be ranty, but a little bit more positive than than angry, if that makes sense. That's okay. That's brilliant. We are we, we are anything but a positive podcast here. So as we introduce you, that's quite a collection of titles there some of which you've earned, some of which have awarded to you by other people. So for our history ages out there, would you give us an insight into your background, career, and how you ended up where you are? Yes. So as you've already said, I'm, I'm currently the curator of the Royal Logistics Corps Museum. Um, but for the last four and a half years, I was the assistant curator at the Royal Engineers Museum. So I have a lot of love for the Royal Engineers. I spent a lot of time working with the archive and with the objects, dealing with the history, but also with the serving Royal Engineers, um, with the Corps now. Before that, I was at the Imperial War Museum um, in various different roles. I did a bit of collecting. I did a little bit of exhibitions. I also did a little bit of security, and I bounced back to the security team so many times that by the end of it, I was running the security team. <laughs> so well, what led you down this kind of history, heritage, museum path in the first place? So I have a master's in military history, but uh, when I finished my master's, I didn't actually anticipate a career in museums. I wanted to go into police intelligence, um, but I, I kind of went to the interview still drunk from the night before. So very clearly, <laughs> I didn't 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 <laughs> didn't get into that. And I was volunteering with the Imperial War Museum at the time, and I just kept ending up in, in museum posts. 
and just kept going down that path. And museum careers are actually really, really hard to get into. You've got to you've got to really have a lot of tenacity. You've got to keep going. You've got to take really, really badly paid jobs that are worth so much more money to get the experience to get somewhere. And even though it was a ridiculously hard career, I still just accidentally fell into it and then just kept going once I was into it. I didn't really know what else to do that involved something that I really loved, like history. So what was your, if you, was the Imperial War Museum kind of your first museum then? And you say you were... It was my first museum where I got to really engage with the collection. Uh, before that, I had actually done a six-month stint in the Science Museum as the bookseller and getting someone who has absolutely zero science knowledge to sell science books and be the science book specialist was clearly not a good idea. And before that, I used to do stewarding at Buckingham Palace during the summer. But I used to stand next to Napoleon's table uh, most days and it was really hard not to touch it. <laughs> oh, <it'd be> so <laughs> dreamy. <laughs> And believe me, we have got a queue of rages coming on to uh, go, uh, well, do you know what? Napoleon's not all that. We might have to get you on to do all them. <laughs> I really, really did. I was tempted to come on today and do something really pro-Napoleon. But you know what? I get Marcus Cribb on my tail on a daily basis anyway. I didn't want to antagonise him any further. Well, this is fine. A few seasons time, okay, when he's forgotten about us, yeah. you're on. <laughs> we won't agree with you, but you're on. <laughs> Okay, so having looked at your background, let's say you've worked your way all the way through the museums up to, you know, curator level. And for those of you out there that are thinking of a museum career, I, could, I couldn't have painted a better picture of that myself. That is exactly how you've got to go ahead and do it, really. Um, so having, having talked then about, you know, the love of museums and the things you enjoy, the things that you fall into, let's start to talk about the thing that really drives a stake <laughs> through your soul. So, Sam, please, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, please tell our ragers what you wish people would just stop believing. To sum it up in one initial sentence, the Royal Engineers are more than just bridging in the Second World War. I get it. I get it. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. Uh, paratroopers gliding in um, in their gliders and parachuting in on D-Day to take the Pegasus Bridge. It's dramatic. I get it. Building the Amazon bridge over the Rapido crossing under fire. Dramatic. It's great. And the men who did that were incredibly brave. And it is a huge, huge part of the Royal Engineer narrative. But you know what? There's over 300 years of Royal Engineer history. There's a lot of cool shit going on. Excellent. And we want to get into uh, into that cool shit straight away. But before we do, OK, before we do. Just to clear up, and I'm particularly thinking of our medieval and Georgian types here, just to clear up any misunderstandings, could you please explain what the hell the Royal Engineers do? So basically throughout history, everything. But fundamentally, the Corps ensures the army can live, move and fight. Sappers are soldiers first, combat engineers second, their trade third. The, the current serving corps, they have electricians, they have carpenters, they have bricklayers, fabricators, plasterers, plumbers. They have EOD and search operatives. They have divers. They've got paras. They've got geographical surveyors. There's also armoured engineers and even commandos. They also dabble in communications, which don't tell the corps signals that. And <laughs> obviously, they still do bridging. Being a combat engineer as their second, second priority. It's a popular cat badge in the army today because when you leave, you leave with a trade behind you. 
And in recent years, the, the Corps have undertaken some really, really good projects. They've helped build a UN hospital in the Sudan as part of Trenton. They've rebuilt bridges after flooding in Cumbria about 10 years ago. They recently assisted with the COVID testing centres. In 2019, uh, the Corps fixed a dam in Whaley Bridge, Derbyshire and saved the town. Um, and following the devastation of Hurricane Irma in 2017, the RE helped with the relief effort there. So a lot of, a lot of humanitarian things in the current Corps. Historically, the Royal Engineers pioneered photography, map making and signalling. They taught the Navy how to dive and they taught the RAF how to fly. The Army had something new. They gave it to the engineers. We have balloons now. Give it to the sappers. We want to use gas. Give it to the sappers. You want to put a telegraph line through the Atlantic? Oh, yeah, let's give it to the sappers. During the First World War, the Corps also operated the railways and the inland water transport. The forestry unit would cut down trees, turn it into wood. Field companies would then use those um, pieces of wood as transport boards. Workshops popped up all over the front where engineers would develop new grenades and study capture German weaponry. And the Corps grew so large in the First World War that at its peak, the RE were the size of the entire BEF in 1914. The entire BEF is what the RE grew to in 1917. And obviously, digging ditches and building roads are, are also something that the Corps do. And yeah. they sound quite boring, but they can be dangerous too. For example, during the Second World War, Major John Paisley was leading a section constructing a road in Normandy. And an enemy aircraft uh, strafed the section. It blew up a concrete mixer and we have his jerkin. Um, oh, sorry. My former museum has his jerkin in uh, in the museum. And on the back, it's all ripped up from the concrete mixer. So you'll see the, the Royal Engineers, they, they live up to their motto, Uberque, which means everywhere. Um, but they really do do anything. And this is quite often in remarkable ways. And just to, to sum up this, this, this intro here, General Slim said the sappers in Burma had a motto. The difficult we can do at once. The impossible will take a little longer. And for miracles, we require one week's notice. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was an yeah. incredible intro rage. And where we, you've now set the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so based on the research I've literally just done in the last three seconds, the Royal Engineers start out right at the start of the 18th century. But we've talked a lot about the Second World War. What are they doing in between, between their founding and <laughs> the Second World War? So, as you say, they, they were officially founded in 1716, but they actually came from the Board of Ordnance, which had been going for a lot longer before then. Um, and on a, a lovely quick aside, so the artillery and the Royal Engineers, when they were part of the Board of Ordnance, uh, they, 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 they maintain this beautiful rivalry to this day. And I say beautiful because it's obviously always friendly. But the artillery thought the engineers were overpaid and the engineers thought the artillery were uncouth. But um, all these trades that I've mentioned uh, meant the RE was sent into a lot of conflicts and they've done a lot of peacetime projects, as, as I've mentioned with, with modern peacetime projects. If there's a military innovation to be had, there's always going to be an RE officer involved somewhere. So the one I'd like to start with, William Roy pioneered the Ordnance Survey in the late 1700s, leading to excellently accurate terrain maps for commanders to plan their battles. Uh. Some, some mappy expert, a person like a few years ago, he compared Roy's maps to modern measurements and found that the few times he was out, it was, it was by less than a metre. And in 1814 and 1815, RE officers under Carmichael Smith used these skills to survey the areas around what would become the battlefield of Waterloo. The RE Museum has the draft map where Wellington made these pencil marks. So they, they made in sections. So they would send an RE officer to sketch and measure a, a smaller section. 
and they would all come together and they would pin and sew the, the different pieces together and then they would make a final version from that map. But Wellington wanted the map far quicker than they were able. They had the pieces, they'd gone out and done the research, but he wanted the map before they could make the final version. So they stuck together all the all the crappy little pieces. So they're all different colours uh, and the lines all match up because they were so precise with their measurements and they just presented Wellington with this really ramshackle patchwork slightly shoddy looking map <laughs> but these to this day the the ordnance survey maps that people use now they are they are from um the basis that william roy started back in the 1780s and in the development of survey techniques the the core were early users of cameras and photography the museum holds some fantastic photographs taken by the royal engineers of the boundary commission in um, in canada they also went to honduras and different places um, on indian boundaries the collection in the Royal Engineers Museum has not only beautiful Canadian landscapes, the, the border between Canada and, and America, but also of the indigenous populations and their, their culture. And some of these are quite unique photographs. I mentioned earlier that the RE taught the Navy how to dive. So Charles Paisley, yeah. who started the School of Military Engineering, he pioneered military diving. And fun side fact about Paisley, you're going to get a lot of fun side facts. You might want to tell me to pipe down soon. Uh, fun side fact about Paisley, he was injured during the flushing in the Walker expedition, expedition in 1809. And whilst he's recuperating in the UK, he had a lot of negative things to say about the skills of the soldier artificers in uh, Walker. And the, the engineering side of the siege of flushing was not, not great. So the Board of Ordnance basically said, stop your bits then and fix the problem. And in 1812, he had to open the School of Military Engineering with him in charge to uh, to rectify the, the training problems. Anyway, basically, diving. In 1782, the HMS Royal George sank off the coast of Portsmouth, and this presented a huge shipping, shipping hazard. Uh, a couple of salvage attempts had been made, but in 1839, they called him Paisley because he had been successfully clearing with his RE divers wrecked in the Thames. He had, first of all, instigated that all divers had to dive in pairs, which meant that hazards could be noted quicker um, and more divers were surviving accidents. And he also um, was demolishing these wrecks by placing underwater charges and blowing the wrecks up in little controlled explosions. And this was hugely successful. The, the Royal George came down and they salvaged as well a lot of a lot of pieces from the Royal George. So several cannon were actually salvaged, melted down, and apparently they're now used somewhere on Nelson's Column. I'm not, I'm not sure which bit i also mentioned that the re taught the raf how to fly yes. so starting with yes yes the raf don't like to acknowledge this <laughs> starting with the balloon school at chatham the corps moved into airplanes in 1911 and a lot of the first the royal flying corps pilots when it was formed in 1912 actually came from the royal engineers one of the most famous ones didn't actually i'm, I'm kind of going to move my own point here a little bit by one of the famous ones didn't learn to fly with royal engineers he was a royal engineer only learned to fly when he was part of the uh, um, Royal Flying Corps, James McCudden. James McCudden is this fantastic young man who became this huge vice race and then really tragically, like a lot of them, just he died uh, during the war. But again, uh, another plug for the Royal Engineers Museum. If you want to go see his Victoria Cross, head to the Royal Engineers Museum. And obviously, we can't forget the task that gives sappers their names, which is digging trenches. In the Crimea, when ever new officers arrived at Sevastopol and they looked despairingly at the trench network before them, and they would ask how to get from point X uh, to point Y. They were simply told, eh, follow the sapper. And that remains the catchphrase of the Corps today. And <laughs> one of my yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite Crimean war stories, a guy called Peter Leach, he's a, a color sergeant. 
it's for extreme carpentry under fire. But whilst uh, while storming extreme the redan, uh, carpentry, did you say? Yeah, extreme yes. carpentry. So imagine this: they're storming the redan. It's one of the one of the failed redan um, sort of over the top sieges, and his troops are getting shot to pieces. And this giant man with a big Crimean beard, he runs up to the Russian parapet. His men are still behind him in the trench, getting shot at. And he runs to the parapet and he just starts ripping wooden gabions off of the Russian defences, runs back to his men, builds little little um, little shelters for them, and then runs back to the Russians, grabs more bits. And he's just doing this backwards and forwards and just building these shelters. under. His men are dying off around him. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to make some shelters for my guys. <laughs> that is, I had never heard of that. Never heard of that. That that is. I don't know about what you're thinking, Carl, but I think that's probably the most awesome fact that we've had on History Road so far. That's where all in favour. Our next living history impression: carpentry, carpentry under fire. <laughs> He's such a great guy. <laughs> and that actually kind of like neatly brings into um, my third question because you you've kind of highlighted one example there, but I'm going to push you on to on on others. So if I think about engineers pre World War Two, then I'm thinking Zulu and I just came here to build a bridge and a good top tenor section, but no baritones. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what, what happened What happened then at Rourke's Drift is a very impressive gallant last stand, but it's less engineering focused than, than we might like. So can you tell us some occasions then where the, the engineering has changed the outcome of the engagement? Mm. And many people argue that Dalton of the Commissariat was more vital to lead into the defence of Rock Strisser, but uh, maybe we'll save that for a raw logistic core rage at some point. Yeah. At the moment, at the moment uh, my loyalty can be with guard. That'll be his cheerleader for a little bit longer. Um, although actually, also he was there to—he wasn't there to build a bridge. He was there to maintain a, like a little a little cable ferry. But that's one of the film's many elaborations. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> changing the outcome of an engagement. The thing with the Royal Engineers is a lot of the stuff they do doesn't necessarily get the sexy battlefield glory, which is why I completely understand why the Amazon Bridge and Pegasus Bridge and why blowing up bridges, because they're very dramatic. They're very in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the battle. I understand why they dominate the narrative. But the First Abyssinian War is a fantastic example of engineering winning a war. Uh, so for context, it's one of Victoria's wars uh, where she was re- she rejected the Abyssinian emperor's call for military assistance. He took 12 missionaries hostage and Vicky got angry. It was the first war where a field army was led by an engineer officer. This is Sir Robert Napier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was mainly because there wasn't an infrastructure there for the Victorian army to fight the kind of war the Victorian army wanted to fight. So they built the entire infrastructure from scratch. The ports, the roads, the warehouses, the wells, the railways. They fought the war, won the war, and then packed up the entire infrastructure behind them as they left. <laughs> so they yeah. literally they took the railways back with them when they when they shipped out. Yeah, absolutely. They took everything with them when they left. It's not like the images of, of uh, British colonial India where they build infrastructure and leave it there for centuries. They packed it up with them as they left. <laughs> <laughs> But um, another another really good example, again, uh, of a port, a temporary port, we've got the Mulberry Harbour. Without the Mulberry Harbour, the Battle of Normandy never, ever have been sustained. And for those unfamiliar with Mulberry, they were literally two, two massive floating harbours, prefabricated in Britain, 
erected by the Royal Engineers in the days following D-Day. Construction started pretty much as soon as the, the, the beaches were, were taken and secured. This is an extraordinary feat of engineering because they the, the, the various pieces of them would go up and down with the tide. There were pontoons, there were docks, there were roadways. And then there was a flexible concrete mattress uh, that looks like a chocolate bar and was actually nicknamed by the guy who designed it, Chocolate Mattress. Uh, chocolate mattresses linked the roadways to the beach. Um, unfortunately, the, the American harbour went down in a storm pretty much immediately after construction because the Royal Engineers are clearly better than the American engineers. Not or anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the British harbour, Aramunch, became the only one operational and was hugely, hugely important. But the reason this harbour is important is because it meant allies could launch D-Day assaults on the lesser defended beaches instead of on the heavily protected existing harbours. Because once you've got your men on the land, you need to be able to supply them. If you can't supply them, yay, logistics! If you can't supply them, you're not going to win the war. And so these harbours meant that they could uh, they could storm the lesser defended beaches, still set up a harbour, and still still supply the troops. And this one of the one of the designers of the Mulby Harbour, a Royal Engineer called called Stuart Webster. The Royal Engineers Museum got his collection, his archive, and a few objects at auction a couple of years ago. He served in the First World War as well, and in this collection is one of my favourite objects in the uh, in the Royal Engineers Museum. And I, I, it's, it's, it's a very spurious link, but I like I like I call it the butt bullet, and I like to say it's the First World War bullet that saved the second. So this bullet. Shot Steer Webster. He was in the infantry. It shot him in the butt a couple of weeks before the Somme. He got invalided out of the infantry. So he survived. He didn't go on the Battle of the Somme. He survived the First World War. He couldn't serve in the infantry anymore. So he a lot of um, a lot of people who could still fight couldn't fight in the infantry would go into the Royal Engineers. And in the Royal Engineers, he designed the Mulberry Harbour, which won the Battle of Normandy, which won the Second World War. So this little butt bullet bullet that saved the second world war and i know it's spurious but 50 percent of being a curator is making spurious stories confident yes i absolutely and 50 percent <laughs> of military history is people getting shot in the ass and <laughs> being grateful for doing so as well exactly so those are those are sort of big big examples of things that have turned the tide they're not necessarily um in the the heat of the moment in the middle of a battle like like Pegasus Bridge and, and, and the Amazon Bridge over the Rapido River are, but they are two very, very important examples of, of great engineering that have won a war. And there's smaller, less sexy examples everywhere. So, yeah, the Special Brigade, um, you know, their, their gas didn't win the war, but it, it, it helped along with it. And camouflage, the Royal Engineers invented camouflage, which without camouflage, so many people would have died so much quicker in the First World War. So, oh, and obviously the trenches that a sapper builds to protect the men. That's a really basic one. They're not sexy, but engineering wins wars. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, you briefly mentioned that the special brigade, and you mentioned that in your kind of emails backwards and forwards to me as well, which I have to say I'd not heard of. Again, as I've demonstrated, my knowledge of Royal Engineers is poor to uh, to say the least crumbling in fact now imagine the special brigade is a lot less glamorous than it sounds but what are they doing the special brigade is one of my favorite parts of royal engineer history and by that by, by no means i'm saying using gas in war is great i'm just saying that it's, it's interesting it happened it's... we have to move <laughs> on from that don't we? exactly study it learn from it it's it's such a famous part of the first world war warfare it, it's one of the main buzzwords that people will use, anyone on the street will use, if you ask them what they know about the First World War. However, the focus is usually on the effects of gas used on the men in the trenches rather than the Royal Engineers unleashing it on the enemy. So you're right, a lot of people don't necessarily know who they are, even though they know about gas warfare in the First World War. Mm-hmm. So on the 22nd of April, 1915, the Germans used gas for the first time on French and Canadian troops in the Equal Battalion. Everyone knows this. The British Army wanted to retaliate. And a young Major Charles Fawkes was summoned from the front line to, to see General Robertson, who was General, um, sorry, Field Marshal Sir John French's chief of staff at the time. Do you know anything about gas? Robertson asked him. And Fawkes looks at him confused and goes, no, nothing at all, sir. And Robertson just looks at him and goes, well, nah, it's all right. I don't think that matters. And so the Special Brigade began. They got in this man who knew absolutely nothing about gas and they didn't give a shit. The call, up, the call went for men who, uh, who had experience in chemistry. Uh, men came from multiple cat badges, and some men, like John Miles Thomas, signed up as a civilian working from Boots, a chemist. So we had a lot of a lot of actual, genuine chemists of scientific knowledge signing up. Mm-hmm. None of them knew what they were signing up for, only that they might be useful. Uh, very much this this classic uh, "I want to be useful to the war effort" attitude going on here. The Special Brigade base of operations was a place called Hellfelt. And it was only once they got to help out this first batch of men did they realise that in reality they were going to basically be hoisting around heavy canisters of gas into the trenches, turning on tap and releasing it. And a lot of these men had real scientific knowledge. Like you had, you had, you had graduates of Imperial College London slugging these canisters around. So you can imagine the frustrations of these men. Like they've gone yeah. to do science work and they're moving things around in the mud. They're like, we could have done this in the field company. But... However, in acknowledge, uh, acknowledgement of the knowledge and skills that they had been summoning, all these men were automatically made corporal. Meaning like someone like John Thomas from Boots entered the service immediately as a corporal and just skipped a few ranks. So the Special Brigade famously first used gas at the Battle of Lewes in September 1915. And unfortunately, the, the weather did cause some gas to roll back onto the Special Brigade themselves and some clung into no man's land, affecting the infantry advance. And this was this was something that happened quite a lot to, to members of the Special Brigade. They would accidentally get gas by their own gas, not just from the weather pouring it back yeah. at them. But sometimes when they were using the um, in the early parts of the war, the less reliable canisters with um, pipes plumbed and going over the top, there would be a leak in the pipe. But just suddenly they'd be going, oh, God, here we go again. Guys, get your mask back on. And in the, in the memoirs from the Royal Engineers Museum, you, you get this. Get the, like with all First World War memoirs, you do really get this vibe that it's just how it is. They're getting gassed by their own stuff, and it's just part of the job. But there's also yeah. regularly the sentiment that the Germans were the bad guys for using gas first. And the Royal Engineers Special Brigade are simply developing better ways to react 
affiliate with it. Uh, they've had to lower themselves to it because the Germans did it first. But now that we're here, now that we're here, we're going to develop. We're going to be better than them. So they're the bad guys, but we're going to make super gas. So um, they developed like they do, uh, like all royal engineers do. They develop in front of them. By the end of the war, the special companies were releasing gas from projectors and also from chain ca- train carriages and what was called a beam attack. But the special brigade didn't just use gas; they also on, experimented man. with fire. Excellent, because you know <laughs> ah, you just can't yes. get torturous enough. Can you? <laughs> exactly, but they weren't overly effective. So, as they're the royal engineers, what do they want to do? They want to make it more effective. They want to burn them. Tell me, tell me you are coming out with super fire. I want super fire. Maybe not quite super fire, but um, a man named Captain Livins in the Battle of the Somme was trying to clear out a well-dug-in German like little troop, a little troop of Germans really hiding in their famous dugouts. The grenades aren't working. uh, So he has this great idea. And he gets these massive oil cans, like the biggest oil can he can find. And he makes this amazing Molotov cocktail and just poof. And I know I'm saying it very flippantly when actually these Germans probably died. So it's very horrible. But he just he just threw it down there, blew up the thing. It was so, so, so effective. that He decided he would make more of these and he'd make a mortar. He would make what would become the Livens projector and he would make these um these drums more more permanent and more canister like and he would shoot these fireball things through the sky so that they were they were filled with oil and they would burst when they landed and they would just spread burning oil all over the target because it's far far harder to get rid of burning oil than it is to just get rid of a fire because once that oil gets on you you're yeah. you're you're a little fuse yourself uh, so this was the living's projector and then obviously because the royal engineers are efficient they went oh you know what we can do with this living's projector what we can put gas canisters in it. We can shoot gas at them as well. And we can get their artillery. Yeah. Obviously not all with a West Country accent. <laughs> I was just going to say, we've all got a bit, it's gone like a cider festival all of a sudden. But uh, do go on. Good. I mean, that's, that's really graphic stuff. That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know war's an ugly business and everything like that. But yeah, we we, we don't pay too much attention to the fact that well, like you say, Germans did it first, and we consider ourselves better than that for it. But like you say, it is how it is. It is how it was developed at the time. We haven't done it since, and I think we can probably be all thankful. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It, we do We do have a, a chemical and biological and radioactive unit in the, uh, in the, the army today. It's with the Royal Engineers again. Uh, it went with the, the RAF for a while, but it's now back with the Royal Engineers. But it's not to use gas warfare. It's to prevent gas warfare. It's yeah, if the if if there is a chemical used against us, it's so we have a unit trained to be able to counteract that. Yeah. Okay, so that that was the special brigade. Yeah. That's wow, yeah. super gas. <laughs> so whilst we're on the subject of these horrible, brutal things, uh, one of the things that's often associated with the Royal Engineers and the First World War is the tunneling and mines we're thinking like the opening series of peaky blinders for instance um so what are these tunnels doing and what do we know about their actual experiences of the war Mm, absolutely tunneling is a a huge part of first world war royal engineer activities which i i didn't actually list earlier because there are just you'll see there's so many things royal engineers do it's it's very hard to actually Mm. remember them all in one go but I think uh, a good way into this is actually through uh, a 1980s excavation of 
a tunnel that uh, the Royal Engineers Museum collected a lot of objects from. So in 1986, um, the Durand mine was excavated. It, it was uh, it was it was dug in preparation for the Battle of Vimy Ridge, and it was it was packed full of explosives still. So they called in the Royal Engineers, hence why the Royal Engineers Museum got some stuff. Again. We had some inside inside. Yeah, see, Royal Engineers they do EOD yeah. and bomb disposal. They'll do historic stuff in the modern times. Um, <laughs> So uh, some Royal Engineers went in to look at the original charges and see whether they needed detonating or whether they were fine. And they found that there was 5,000 to 6,000 pounds worth of explosives in them. Um, and fortunately, the, they weren't explosive anymore. They were so, so wet. Uh, they'd all turned to a bit of a liquid, liquid, liquid slurry. But the team also found some really great examples of tunnelling and mining equipment left behind. Because the uh, the Canadian front line, who the Royal Engineers were supporting at Vimmeridge, had moved so fast, so quickly, they'd reached their objectives before the mine needed to be blown up. So the sappers had just like and just ran off to go do whatever they needed to do with other tunnels further down the line. Uh, and among this equipment was a set of earpieces, most likely from a geophone. So this is a device that detects ground movement and alerts tunnelers of an enemy presence. Uh, and these earphones were a really, really successful tool. Lieutenant Brian Fraying of 171 Tunnel Company said that with it, you could hear earthworms crawl and ants walk and listening to a pin drop shock the eardrum. But the thing with this is you had to get right up close to the movement. So you've got Germans digging alongside you, potentially, what, you, what you're thinking you're trying to listen for, and you've got to get right up close. So it's incredibly dangerous. So what they also had was a, um, a device, an electric device called a geoseismic microphone. So you could sit further away. And this allowed the operator to be stationed further away from the danger than a geophone, but they're not as accurate. So then you'd have to go up with the geophone once you've got, oh, I think that might be a, a German. I'll send, <laughs> you've got the short straw. You can go listen up close with the, uh, with the geophone. So naturally, as, as, as I've said, the, the Germans are on the other side trying to listen out for sappers as well. Yeah. So the uh, Corps needed to come up with quiet ways of digging these tunnels because otherwise you're just going to be losing your men and you don't want to lose your men and you don't want to lose a tunnel. The Manchester sewer contractor developed a great way of digging quietly called clay kicking, especially useful in the heavy clay of Flanders. Not quite as good in the uh, the Vimy Ridge uh, area, but definitely in the really heavy clay of uh, the bog down bit of Flanders. Clay kicking was amazing. So you'd have the the, the spade, officially called a grafting tool, with hands on the, the handle at the top, but his feet on the, the, the bladey bit at the bottom. And he'd use his feet to force it into the mud in front of him. And then there'd be a bagger who, as the name suggests, put the clay in a bag. And a runner who would move the full bag onto a wooden trolley, which would scoop down on rails, back to the entry shaft where another sapper would lift it up. And this was hugely, hugely yeah. effective. The, um, the, the Vimy Ridge excavation actually found an underground railway in it. I mean, the, that's not average tunnels do not have railways in it. That's special. That's very cool. But the average tunnel, as you can imagine, did not have railways in it because digging these, digging these tunnels and mines was hugely claustrophobic and dangerous. So as you can imagine, the RE had to recruit a lot of career miners for this role. And by miners, I, I do literally mean coal miners. I don't mean children. This isn't the Victorian era. So mm. one such was a 43-year-old William Hackett, and he'd been a professional miner for 23 years. He tried to join the infantry three times, but he was deemed too old and he had a heart condition. The Royal Engineers, however, as I said earlier, with the butt bullet man, they take, I wouldn't say they take anyone, 
do you have all your limbs? Yes, we'll take you. So... <laughs> <laughs> Excited. The, the Royal Engineers wanted miners. This man had a heart condition, but he had a lot of mining experience. So the course said, "Come on in. You're welcome." I suppose. Uh, I, you... I suppose, really, though, you know, if you're looking for somebody with twenty years of mining experience, you're not going to take an eighteen-year-old. Yeah, we can overlook the heart condition for this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Your skills are more important. During uh, a dig in June 1916 of the Shaftesbury Avenue mine, a German mine exploded. Uh, Hackett and four other sappers were trapped in a gallery and a party worked for 20 hours to get them out. But only a small, a small and very volatile hole. It was, um, it was almost collapsing in on itself as they were digging it. A small and volatile hole, hole could be made. Hackett helped three of his comrades out and he could have easily made it out himself. But there was a fifth sapper fifth comrade was seriously injured and he couldn't get out he can get out on his own but he also couldn't get out with the help of, of of Hackett he was just too injured he just had to lie there so Hackett turned to his comrades who were in the, the moderate safety of the other side so there's always the risk of the tunnel collapsing but the, the real risk is on Hackett's side um so he turned to his comrades and he said to them I'm a tunneler I must look after the others first and he stayed with this wounded man whilst the gallery collapsed around him the part the party worked for four days to save Hackett and his colleague but they couldn't and Hackett and his colleague were never found. Hackett was a professional miner. He knew, as we've established, he, he knew full well that the gallery was collapsing. He knew what that meant for him. And he knew what staying behind with his friend meant for him and his friend. Mm. But he refused to let him die alone. And for this, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. And it's, it's, it's a very unique Victoria Cross in my mind because normally, I can't forget the, ex I forget the exact words of the Victoria Cross, but it's usually it's, under direct fire of yeah. enemy action or something like that. And this this wasn't. Even if you class the mine as being an enemy weapon, normally anything EOD related gets at that point Empire Gallantry Medal or after that, uh, after World War II, the, the George Cross. So it's a very unique medal. But his daughter, his daughter, when she accepted it at Buckingham Palace, she held it in her hand and she said, it's such a small thing in exchange for a life. Yeah. Wow. Sorry to bring you all down. That's fine. <laughs> No, you should, yeah. you should bring us all down, you know. We, we've done a couple of rages about, you know, the First World War isn't all that depressing, but apart from it, it is, uh, has its elements that, that should yeah. bring you down. So do, don't apologise <laughs> for that. Okay, and round this up with, that, uh, with the last question then. So you, we talked about, like, structures and railways and building the infrastructure and everything like that. So what have we got today that we can thank the RE for? Well... Big, lovely, shiny structures. Uh, we've got the Royal Albert Hall. That was originally designed by Captain Francis Falk of the RE, and he was such a distinguished architect that for many years the Corps would award a Falk Medal as a prize um, to top students on the Clerk of Works course. And the VNA, mm -hmm. the Royal Engineers helped with with the VNA as well. I will, I will say the word bridging. There are. As I mentioned earlier, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> there are lots and lots and lots of bridges and railways in Pakistan and India still standing today that were built by the Royal Engineers in the late 19th and early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the lovely Pakistan doctor, he was um, he was he was investigating something for me and then got onto my job. And whilst I'm in a very compromising position, decided to tell me all about the good bridges in Pakistan, his home country, where the Royal Engineers build bridges. And I'm like, uh huh. 
is this the time? Is this the time, sir? <laughs> a lot of colonial buildings, a lot of colonial buildings um, in India are, are Royal Engineers designed. And actually, the, the Royal Engineers Museum is it's on the edge of Brompton Barracks, and it's in what was built as the electrical school to train budding electrician Royal Engineers. But it is it is a really lovely building designed and built by Royal Engineers, and it does very much have slightly in slightly Indian influences. It has that lovely Victorian red brick, but then it has sort of Indianish domes on on the turrets. It's really playing on that that Royal Engineers colonial. Not that colonial is necessarily a good a good thing to emulate, but it's a beautiful building regardless. That's some dockyards. The Royal School of Military Engineering, which was set up by good old Paisley after his bitching, it's based in the dockyard area at Chatham. There's there's always been a military presence there, largely because of the dockyards, even before the, the school was founded. So they uh, built slips, these covered slips, where they were originally building ships undercover. But now uh, some of the museum's larger objects, like tractors and a few armoured vehicles that we don't have space for, are there. Oh, I love tractors. Combat engineering tractors are amazing. I don't care if the surface don't like them. I think some of them think you're a bit clunky, but they're tractors that float on the water and they have little guns at the front that go pew pew. How cool is I want one of those. But <laughs> I digress. Um, armed tractors. Armed tractors, armed tractors is cool. And I I will fight uh, anybody who says otherwise. Armed, da, 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 armed tractors. <laughs> That go with <laughs> <no> <laughs> Yeah, well, she lost me there with the technical, you know, the technical army yeah. mumbo jumbo there. What? What? Yeah. But yes. But anyway, back to the question. Um, in, in summary, basically, they've. I'll, I'll stop now. But they've they've basically left their mark everywhere in every ordnance survey map that you use, in every coastal fort that you see that was to fend off my beloved Napoleon. In every house that didn't blow up because a bomb disposal sapper detonated the bomb, every every soldier, Second World War to now, um, that came home because a Royal Engineer detonated the mine so they didn't step on it. And on the flip side of that, obviously on every war memorial where there's a Royal Engineer, their marks are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so one, one mark that kind of sits in my mind, because you mentioned it earlier on, um, is... I believe I haven't installed it on my new computer, so I haven't actually checked this out yet. So, but I uh, and if this is not the case, I'm totally editing this out. I believe if you go onto Google Earth, you can still see the Mulberry Harbour. Yes, no, there are there are bits of the Mulberry Harbour still at Aramanch. Yeah, you can still see them from the beach. Awesome. Well, thank you, thank you very much for that, Sam, because that has given us a solid introduction to a regimental history that probably nay definitely deserves a lot more limelight than they get and sorry about engineers it is sexy it is glamorous <laughs> thank you very much for coming on that was brilliant you're welcome thank you for having me and obviously i haven't had a chance to to cover even a small amount of the royal engineer history today so i really cannot emphasize enough if you're interested in the royal engineers go to the royal engineers museum in medway the museum is wonderful even if you're not interested in the royal engineers go because you'll get interested in the royal yeah, engineers you'll see a combat engineering tank yeah. that goes pew pew Whoa. well if you'd like to know more about sam's work then you can start as we say by visiting either of the two museums that she has curated those being the royal engineers museum and the royal logistic corps museum uh, and you can follow her on twitter at s underscore jolly that's j-o-l-l 
EY. And I'm sure there'll be lots of tractors pew-pewing and Napoleon love on that feed. Lots of Napoleon Playmobil. I have a, I have a lot of fun with a, a Playmobil Napoleon. Careful. <laughs> Well, once again, Sam, thank you very much. That was an absolutely epic rage. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage but until next week thanks a lot for listening and stay angry bye 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 planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.